It was a crisp, cold winter morning in February in Great Falls, Montana, when 10-year-old Zachary Ramsey stepped out of his apartment building and was on his way for his daily morning walk to Whittier Elementary School. To Zach and his family, this was routine, and no one had any reason to fear for his safety. But on that sixth day of February, evil would make his presence known. Zach would never make it to his school, and he would never return home. Zachary would disappear completely with speculation that he was abducted, murdered, cannibalized, and portions of his organs and flesh sold to the community. This is Unsolved Mysteries of the World, Season 1, Episode 15, The Disappearance of Zachary Ramsey. Zachary walked down his street kicking up snow and entered an alley as he made the short trip to his school, located only six blocks away from his home. It isn't known whether he noticed a man sitting in an off-white four-door sedan parked in the alley behind a house on the 400 block of 5th Avenue North with his engine running. Zach was a smart kid, by all accounts, and it seems reasonable to presume that he would have hesitated and hastened his pace towards school or changed his route if he had noticed the man in the car. That fact, along with many others, likely never will be known. Zach never made it out of the alleyway that morning. He was marked absent at school, and his mom was called at 10 a.m. that morning, who said that Zachary was not at home ill, and that he should have made it to school. Soon, one of the biggest news stories not to mention the most bizarre, to hit Great Falls, Montana, was to break wide open to a stunned public who did not want to believe the worst. The truth was that they had no idea yet about the absolute evil that had befallen their otherwise peaceful and happy community. Zachary's mother left her workplace at a local restaurant and immediately returned home and then followed the route her son would have taken to school calling out his name and looking for him everywhere. Zach had vanished. Fearing the worst, she immediately called police and requested assistance. Two police officers were sent to the Ramsey home and filed the initial missing persons report. The mother attempted to make contact with Zachary's father, who was in the Air Force and serving at Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Meanwhile, she told officers that Zach was a smart boy who was not shy. He liked talking to people, and it would not be unusual if he talked to strangers. But he had been taught never to get into a car with someone he did not know, and he understood the dangers associated with doing so. Even though his mother had considered it, Zach wasn't known to skip school, making it highly unusual for him not to show up for class on time. Besides, she said, Zachary was looking forward to going to school that day to receive an award for his artwork. A month previous, Zach had tried to run away from home, she told police, but Zach, knowing his mother would be worried sick about him, called from a restaurant and asked to be brought back home and apologized. His attempt at running away only lasted an hour. Police concluded that this time, Zach most likely was not running away from home, and were speculating on an abduction with precious minutes ticking away. Zachary's mother provided a detailed description of her son to the police, as well as recent photographs. 
He was born on December 18, 1985, a week shy of being a Christmas baby. He was the product of an interracial marriage. His father is black and his mother is white, and he had a dark complexion with dark hair and brown eyes. Zach's mother described her son as four feet tall and weighing approximately 100 pounds. He also had a small scar on his forehead between his eyebrows and wore glasses. However, he did not have his glasses with him that day. He had forgotten them at home. He was also described as having blotchy skin at the time of his disappearance with dimples. When he left for school that morning, he was dressed in stonewashed jeans, a football jersey with his surname, Ramsey, on the back black high-top tennis shoes, and a blue denim baseball jacket with green sleeves. The Great Falls Police Department moved swiftly and conducted a door-to-door search. Residents all over town were asked to check their outbuildings and garages, anywhere that a child might be able to hide out for a while. The police also checked abandoned vehicles, as well as vehicles that were only being used infrequently. They searched Zachary's school and the school grounds, interviewed his friends, and questioned members of his family thoroughly, to no avail. Search parties made up of police officers and citizens alike searched the banks of the Missouri River at several points in town, and a massive search effort was conducted at Gibson Park a large park located in north-central Great Falls, not far from Zach's home. A team of bloodhounds were brought in and searched along the river and through the park as well. The searchers and their dogs literally hunted for the child in places all over town that could be used as a hiding place or places that could be used to dispose of human remains, including garbage bins. However, there was no sign of the boy. One of the neighbors interviewed in the door-to-door questioning told the police that he had seen a man parked in the alley directly behind the house in the 400 block of 5th Avenue North, sometime between 7 a.m. and 7.15 a.m. The neighbor said that the man had been driving a small, off-white four-door car. Then, several members of a family who resided nearby told the police that they had seen Zach at about 7.30 a.m. when he walked down the alley behind 5th Avenue North. One member of the family told the police that Zachary was nearly struck by an off-white four-door vehicle as he came out of the alley to attempt to cross the street. Another witness told the police that she had seen Zach walking down the same alley at about 7.30 a.m., leaving little doubt as to the route the boy had taken to school that morning. Another witness told the police that he had seen Zach at approximately 7.45 a.m. as he crossed 6th Street North and that a man had been following him. He said that the boy was crying and that the man appeared to be upset. The witness provided a sketchy description of the man and to the cops looking for the missing child, it now appeared that the vicinity of where the witnesses had seen the man following the boy was where Zach's trail ended. The problem with that scenario, however, was the time frame. It did not take 15 minutes to walk from the alley behind Fifth Ave North where he was reported to have been seen at 7.30 a.m. to the location at 6th Street North, where he was last seen at 7.45 a.m. Of course, it is possible that the witnesses had been mistaken about the times that they had seen Zach, or it is possible that he had stopped to talk with the man in the car, and that possibly had resulted in Zach's crying. Flyers were printed and newspaper articles featuring the missing boy were printed and distributed all across town. Detective Bill Baluzzi, 
an 18-year veteran of the Great Falls Police Department, was assigned as the lead investigator in Zach's disappearance. The assignment brought back vivid memories for Baluzzi, who, eight years earlier, had worked the case of the disappearance and murder of a nine-year-old, Delona Clark. Delona, who had left her home on her bicycle, was not seen or heard from again until her body was found two years later in the Little Belt Mountains, southeast of Great Falls in the Lewis and Clark National Forest. Baluzzi, who had investigated a number of cases involving sex offenders over the years, hoped that Zach's case would turn out differently, but his gut feelings told him otherwise from the investigation's onset. The local FBI office was notified of Zach's disappearance and Special Agent James Wilson was assigned to provide assistance to the local police. Baluzzi had a lead and he described it to the agent and they both decided to pursue it. From the first day that Zach went missing, Baluzzi was convinced that he knew who was responsible for the child's disappearance. Although the state police, the agency responsible for registering and keeping tabs on sex offenders, had provided Baluzzi with a list of 10 known sex offenders living in Zach's neighborhood, Baluzzi's guts feeling told him that the person who had kidnapped Zach was not on that list. Instead, Baluzzi added an 11th name to the list, that of Nathaniel Bar Jonah. On December 23, 1993, Baluzzi had gone out on a call to investigate the alleged sexual assault of an eight-year-old boy. When the trail led to Bar Jonah, Baluzzi recalled how Bar Jonah had denied fondling the eight-year-old boy and proclaimed his innocence. In that case, the boy had accused Bar Jonah, then 35, of fondling him while Bar Jonah babysat for his parents who had gone to Helena, some 120 miles south of Great Falls, for the evening. Although there was a lack of evidence in the case, it was the boy's word against Bar Jonah's, it was decided that it should be prosecuted anyway. But when he denied the accusations to Baluzzi, he added a statement that made Baluzzi's blood run cold. A chilling comment that the detective would never forget. Bar Jonah told Baluzzi, that if he had done what he was being accused of, he would have simply killed the boy. Although prosecutors held out hoping for a plea bargain, Bar Jonah held out as well, and the case was eventually dropped three years later when Bar Jonah's attorney filed for a motion arguing that his client's right to a speedy trial had been violated. The day Zach turned up missing, I went over to Nate's place. Baluzzi told a reporter for the Great Falls Tribune, referring to Nathaniel Bar Jonah. He wasn't there. The house was dark. Bar Jonah stood out in my mind because I'd worked with him before. I knew he had been violent before, and I knew he was still active. When Baluzzi knocked on his door, no one answered, and the house appeared quiet, almost too quiet. The stillness on the cold winter day seemed somewhat eerie, but without a warrant, they couldn't force the door and go in, even though, upon reflection, they would have liked to. Everything had to be done by the book. With little else that they could do, the officers placed a business card in the door of Bar Jonah's home, asking that he call when he returned. However, Bar Jonah never made the call, and instead, he had seen a lawyer and refused to talk to the police again. 
He had lawyered up, refusing talk to them, and there wasn't anything they could do about it. In this way, bar Jonah's legal maneuvering at the time, and the fact that many predatory sex offenders' laws weren't even on the books yet, had temporarily allowed him to slip through the cracks of a system that was supposed to protect the public. So who was Bar Jonah? Bar Jonah had moved to Great Falls in 1991 from Massachusetts. Although he had been on probation in Massachusetts for sex offenses against children, he was not required to register in Montana as a sex offender. Megan's law was still being debated nationally at the time of Zach Ramsey's disappearance and hadn't even been written, much less proposed by lawmakers when Bar Jonah arrived in Montana. It was only an idea that was being bounced around at the time. Although a national push was on to implement Megan's law state by state, it had not been signed into federal law yet by President Bill Clinton by the time Sachs disappeared, and would be until May 17, 1996. Although Megan's law was only a couple months away from being nationally effective, known sex offenders were not yet required to register with the local police and were not yet part of an evaluation system designed to determine their overall risk of reoffending and the level of danger they pose to the community. With Tier 1 offenders being the least risk and Tier 3 offenders being the greatest, once the tier system was in place, there is little doubt that Bar Jonah could have categorized anything but a Tier 3 offender. However, because the system was not then in place, a crack in the system had turned into a major hole through which repeat offenders like Bar Jonah could fall. No one in Montana knew, yet, just how sordid Bar Jonah's past really was, and it would be some time before his past caught up with him. I don't know if we dropped it or if we overlooked something, Great Falls Chief Bob Jones said later regarding the Zach Ramsey case and the Bar Jonah connection to it. We were going to get back to it, and we didn't. Perhaps if the police in Great Falls had known a little more about Bar Jonah's prior history, they would have been more aggressive early on about pursuing him as the suspect in Zach's disappearance. As it turned out, despite Baluti's suspicions and gut feelings about Bar Jonah, the investigation became chaotic and focused on a number of different people at first, allowing Bar Jonah to remain free to do as he liked for the next three years. In compiling background information, the detectives in Great Falls learned that Bar Jonah had been born in Worcester, Massachusetts on February 15, 1957, as David P. Brown, the youngest of four siblings. While attending first grade between the age of five and six, Brown had what is believed to have been his first run-in with authority when he allegedly choked a female classmate without warning or provocation. In 1973, at age 15, Brown cut letters and words out of magazines and composed a note that he used to attempt to entice two boys from Webster to a cemetery, offering them $20 and a surprise. In that case, the mother of the two boys declined to press charges against Brown. She felt it would be best if he received psychiatric help and felt that he wouldn't receive it through the criminal justice system. Bar Jonah, as David Brown, apparently had his first direct encounter with law enforcement when, at age 18 and also in Webster, he dressed up as a police officer and nabbed an eight-year-old who was on his way to school. 
He pleaded guilty to assault and battery and was sentenced to a year on probation. Two years later, on September 23, 1977, at age 20, Brown again disguised himself as a police officer and enticed two boys into his car near a movie theater in Shrewsbury. Once he had them in his clutches, he handcuffed them and drove them to a tent he had pitched in a wooded area. After ordering the boys to take off their clothes, he began strangling them. One of the boys, however, was able to escape and called the police. Armed with a description of Brown and his car, the police arrested him, following a short chase along one of the state's less-traveled highways. When they opened the trunk, they found the other boy still handcuffed, but thankfully still alive. Three months later, Brown pleaded guilty to attempted murder and kidnapping charges stemming from the September 23rd incident. Although he was sentenced to 18 to 20 years at the Correctional Institute at Walpole, a maximum security prison, he was later transferred to a medium security prison at Concord. On June 5, 1979, he was sent for observation to a state-operated treatment center for sexually dangerous offenders in Bridgewater, in part because of his sexual fantasies that he had shared with a prison psychologist. At the conclusion of the observation period, he was sentenced to an indefinite term at Bridgewater. According to one of the therapists, Brown's sexual fantasies, bizarre in nature, outline methods of torture and extend to dissection and cannibalism and express a curiosity about the taste of human flesh. Brown also reportedly told one of the doctors at Bridgewater that his interest in torture had been present for a long time and that the violent fantasies that he was entertaining were his main source of sexual simulation. And back in Great Falls, the investigators learned that sometime around 1988 or 1989, Brown began using the name Bar-Jonah. In fact, he began calling himself Nathaniel Benjamin Levi Bar-Jonah, but later shortened the name to Nathaniel Bar-Jonah. He apparently told friends and relatives that he had adopted the Jewish name because he wanted to know what it felt like to be prosecuted and discriminated against. It was also at about this time that he began petitioning for his release from Bridgewater. His requests were initially turned down because his psychiatric evaluations noted his violent fantasy life, as well as a huge risk to the community. But approximately two years later, Barjona, along with two psychologists that evaluated him, won a hearing before Suffolk Superior Court Judge Walter E. Steele. After the two psychologists testified that Barjona was no longer a threat to society, Steele ordered him released on February 12, 1991. Administrative and other issues prevented Barjona's release until July of that year. He would later offer public praise to the two psychologists that helped win his release. He says, I've seen God take a hopeless situation like when all avenues were closed. It seemed I'd never ever be released. Yet, God told me I would, and I believe him, even though the evidence of my release was not there. Then totally out of left field, I got two, yes, two Christian psychiatrists who believed in me. That was a miracle in itself to find two Christians in that profession. 
The state had a lot of evidence on their side, yet the judge sided with me. However, he was unable to stay out of trouble for long. Barely a month later, Bar Jonah climbed into a car parked at a post office in Oxford and sat on a seven-year-old boy that was waiting in the front seat for his mother to return. Although the boy screamed for help, his cries were barely audible because of the big man sitting on top of him. When the boy's mother returned to the car, Bar Jonah ran away. He made it to his home and changed his clothes in an apparent attempt to alter his appearance, but it was futile. Too many people had seen him lumbering home. Based on his description and statements from witnesses, he was arrested later that day. He told the police that he had climbed into the car to get out of the rain and that he was planning to ask to be driven home when the driver returned to the vehicle. Two weeks later, in a decision that would later outrage the citizens of Great Falls, Montana, the Worcester County District Attorney allowed Bar Jonah to plead guilty to assault and battery as part of a deal in which he would be sentenced to two years probation on the condition that he agreed to relocate the Great Falls, Montana where he would live with his mother. And within two years of his arrival in Montana on December 18, 1993, Bar Jonah was charged for allegedly molesting the eight-year-old boy in the case initially handled by Detective Bill Beluzzi. Beluzzi worked the Zach Ramsey case full-time for the first 30 days and carried Zach's photos with him wherever he went, showing it to people he questioned to determine if anyone besides the initial witnesses recalled seeing the boy. He also showed photos of Bar Jonah to many of those people he questioned in an attempt to determine if anyone had seen the suspect with Zach. At one point, he approached Cascade County Prosecuting Attorney Brant Light about obtaining a warrant to search the duplex that Bar Jonah shared with his mother located in the 1200 block of 1st Avenue South. However, after considering the detective's request, it was decided there was just yet sufficient cause or evidence tying the case to Barjona to bring the matter before a judge. There were several other sex offenders living in Zach's neighborhood at the time that served to make it difficult to focus solely on Barjona as the primary suspect. Early in the investigation, Beluzzi developed a strong lead that showed promise. When a truck driver and convicted sex offender talked about Zachary to customs agent at the Montana-Canadian border, by that time, Zachary had been missing for several weeks and word about his disappearance had spread far and wide. On hearing the truck driver mention Zach's name, the customs agent promptly contacted authorities and detained the driver and his rig. The FBI searched the vehicle thoroughly and took samples of carpet fiber and other materials from inside the cab. Making matters appear even more promising, they had their man. The truck driver confessed to kidnapping Zachary the day he disappeared. However, following considerable investigation, Beluzzi learned that the truck driver had lied to him. None of the evidence seized by the FBI linked the truck driver to Zach's disappearance and Beluzzi discovered that the driver's truck was broken down and being repaired in Missoula, nearly 150 miles from Great Falls the morning Zach disappeared. Beluzzi wondered why the truck driver confessed to something with which he had not possibly had anything to do with. A nutcase, perhaps. Or maybe the driver was someone looking for attention, a little notoriety. Unfortunately, such things happen in criminal cases and only serve to make the investigators work 
that much more difficult. There were several important aspects of the case that troubled Baluzzi, however, and would keep Barjona as a suspect firmly embedded in the forefront of the detective's mind. One was the fact that Barjona was known to work occasionally in the area of Zach's home and school, shoveling snow off the sidewalks at the Bitterroot Apartments. Another was the fact that Barjona and Zachary attended the same church at various times, and that Barjona had spoken to an acquaintance about Zach only days before his disappearance. Barjona was also known to drive his mother's 1997 Toyota Corolla. It was off-white in color and four doors. However, it was all just circumstantial evidence at this point, and it wasn't sufficient enough to obtain a search warrant for Barjona's residence. Although through the years, they looked at many suspects, Bar Jonah was always at the top of the list, and early on the morning of December 13, 1999, Detective Robert Burton, driving to work at the Great Falls Police Department, saw Bar Jonah walking near an elementary school. The nine-year veteran of the department recognized Bar Jonah and was fully aware of his priors. Detective Burton was concerned because he had seen Bar Jonah on two other occasions in the same area a week earlier. Burton contacted his dispatcher and requested that a patrol unit be sent to the area to make contact with Barjona to determine what he was doing in the area of the school. It was still dark outside when officers Brunk and Badgley, within minutes of being dispatched, arrived on location at the school. When they located Barjona, Brunk turned on his patrol car spotlight and shined it on the big man in the street. Bar Jonah was dressed in a dark blue jacket, similar to that which a police officer might wear, and a knit cap. As he stood illuminated in the darkness, he kept his hands inside his pockets. Brunk instructed Bar Jonah to remove his hands from his pockets and to move in front of the patrol car. Bar Jonah, however, ignored Brunk's request. Brunk made the request a second time, and Bar Jonah continued to ignore him. With Officer Badgley standing by as backup, Brunk asked Barjona if he had something in his pocket. Barjona hesitated and then responded that he was carrying a stun gun. The two officers instructed Barjona to place his hands on the patrol car, with Brunk keeping an eye on Barjona. Badgley conducted a pat-down search. In the search, he found two cans of pepper spray, a toy gun, and a police badge on Barjona. Unsure of state statutes about impersonating a police officer, they called into the shift manager who directed them to release Barjona pending further review of the statutes and the two police officers' initial reports. The next day, Detective Baluzzi, in part because he had been the investigating officer on the 1993 sexual assault case against Barjona in which the charges had been dropped, received the assignment to follow up on Brunk and Badgley's early morning encounter with Barjona. Following consultation with the district attorney's office, it was decided that Barjona should be charged with impersonation of a police officer and carrying a concealed weapon, the toy gun. Finally, a search warrant was issued and the apartment was searched. During the course of the search, police officers seized a blue police coat, a silver toy revolver, a badge, a stun gun, a baseball hat, 
that had security enforcement as its logo across the front, two disposable cameras, two albums with cutouts of children inside, a coat with a badge inside one of the pockets, and numerous other photographs and negatives. Interestingly, the cops also found a pulley on which a rope, a cord, or a chain could be connected. The pulley was attached to the ceiling in Bar Jonah's kitchen. Its significance to the case wasn't immediately known, but it was photographed and noted just the same. The cops also found a document that described in detail how to tie a variety of knots in an article entitled Autoerotic Asphyxia. The possible implications of such items were, of course, horrific, especially if children were involved. At the conclusion of the search, Bar Jonah was arrested and charged with impersonation of a public servant and carrying a concealed weapon. Two days later, Baluzzi applied for and was granted a second search warrant to search for additional photographs of young children, adult or both, any undeveloped film and any other item of evidence related to the offenses for which Bar Jonah had been charged. Among the items found during the search was a bulletin board containing numerous pictures, undeveloped film on disposable cameras, 28 boxes containing papers and newspaper clippings about children, and a list of names of Bar Jonah's previous victims. The list also contained the name Zachary Ramsey. Brant Light, Cascade County District Attorney, says he had notebooks where there's pictures of children cut out of annual school books and newspapers with their names underneath, just like he was collecting baseball cards. Among the names on the list were several of the boys from Webster, Massachusetts, three of whom Bar Jonah was convicted of abducting in the mid-1970s. Police believed that as many as half of the 54 names on one list were those of children that Bar Jonah had grown up with. When everything was collected, there was more than 3,500 photographs of children found inside Bar Jonah's apartment. When Baluzzi had the film developed and prints were made, he found Bar Jonah and three boys in various states of undress. Among some of the other items seized from Bar Jonah's residence during the ex execution of the search warrant were encrypted letters, presumably composed by Bar Jonah, describing such sick and twisted culinary dishes as Little Boy Stew and Little Boy Pot Pie, and the phrases Lunch is served on the patio with roasted child and barbecue be some young guy. These were cannibalistic recipes in which he talked about dishes that he had cooked and served to his neighbors. He even had flyers he drew up selling the meat and prepared dishes to unsuspecting neighbors. It was also learned too that he may have served human flesh from the children at an Arby's restaurant he had worked at, as well as an Air Force Base kitchen. The police also revealed that they had seized a large section of plywood from Bar Jonah's residence during one of the searches. The plywood had a large smear across it, and there was evidence that it had been scrubbed repeatedly with bleach. It was also determined that the plywood had been struck numerous times with a sharp object of some kind. Many people wondered whether the plywood had been used as a cutting board. They had also seized a meat grinder that had hair inside it. 
During a search at one of his previous residence at Great Falls, police dug up portions of the garage and sifted through nearly two tons of dirt, in which they found 21 fragments of human bone. Although it was eventually determined that the bones were those of a child, a boy believed to be between the ages of 8 to 13, DNA analysis showed that the bones were not those of Zachary Ramsey. When the detectives decided that they wanted to examine the sewer pipes beneath the house in which Barjona had previously resided, they were told by the owner that the pipes had all been replaced after Barjona moved out because they were always getting clogged. At one point during their investigation, police uncovered witnesses who claimed that Barjona had held cookouts for his mother, neighbors, and friends after Zachary Ramsey's disappearance, but prior to him being becoming a suspect in the case. He served up spaghetti with meat sauce, casseroles, meat pies, and charbroiled deer burgers to his guests. Police alleged that the source of the meat he had been used in these dishes may have been Zachary Ramsey. Bar Jonah's diners later told the police that they thought the meat had been served weird and tasted strange. His guests told police that when they had asked Barjona why the meat tasted strange, he reportedly told them that he had gone hunting and he had shot a deer. But when police analyzed his shopping habits through the study of his financial records, it indicated that he had not purchased anything significant at a grocery store for nearly a month after Zach's disappearance. Did that mean something? No one knew for certain. He could have had plenty of meat and food on hand and hadn't needed to go to the store, or he could have gone shopping in that time frame and simply paid cash for his purchases. At varying times during the time frame of Zach's disappearance, Barjona had held a part-time job in the kitchen of Malmstrom Air Force Base and another at Hardy's fast food restaurant downtown Great Falls. Speculation ran high that he could have used his position at these two jobs to further get rid of the evidence by feeding it to unsuspecting servicemen and women in the military base and to hungry customers at the fast food restaurant, but there was never sufficient evidence to prove it. But detectives obtained statements from people who were close to Barjona, indicating that he had talked considerably about Zachary Ramsey's disappearance. He had allegedly made statements that Zach's body would never be found because it had been chopped up and strewn about at a variety of locations. The investigators also found witnesses who would be willing to testify that they had seen a bag filled with soiled clothing of the size that would fit a young boy inside Barjona's apartment, as well as a pair of gloves that appeared to be stained with blood. And when Barjona was in custody, he began to taunt Zach's mother by telling her that he had hunted, killed, butchered, and wrapped the meat for her son. Because of the growing concern over the photos of Barjona and the young boys, Great Falls Police Sergeant John Cameron was assigned to assist in the investigation. Cameron, who had extensive experience in specialized training in cases involving sexual abuse, particularly in the area of interviewing victims, carefully examined the list of the children's names written in Barjona's own handwriting. Cameron and FBI agent James Wilson worked together analyzing the list and were eventually able to determine that two of the names on it were of male children who lived in the apartment directly above Barjona. 
Cameron made contact with those children and he recognized that the boys' photographs had been taken with a disposable camera that had been obtained during the searches of Barjona's apartment. There were photos of the two boys inside his apartment, on his couch, on his bed, and were from a roll of film that had also depicted Barjona lying on his bed nude, displaying his penis in various stages of erection. Naturally, Cameron and everyone else associated with the case were immediately concerned that the boys had been victimized by Barjona. One of the boys, who was 14 years old at the time, confirmed that Barjona had indeed sexually abused him. He also provided information indicating that Barjona had also sexually abused his cousin, a fact that Cameron and Wilson confirmed a short time later upon interviewing the cousin. On July 5th, 2000, as a result of Cameron and Wilson's work on the case, Barjona was charged with three counts of sexual assault, one count of aggravated kidnapping, and one count of assault with a weapon. He was held at the Cascade County Jail in Great Falls. Barjona pleaded innocent to all of the charges. Meanwhile, Cameron and his colleagues decided it would be prudent to search for possible victims in Alberta, Canada noting that Great Falls is not a great distance from the border of the U.S. and Canada. We can put him crossing the border several times, and we are working that angle, Cameron said. Alberta and Saskatchewan are the two places I think we were able to place him in, sometime in the mid-1990s. However, despite their efforts to find a solid Canadian connection to Barjona, the detectives came up empty-handed. After considerable legal maneuvering, much of it instigated by Barjona himself, including motions to throw out evidence, requests for change of venue, and changes in his legal representation because of lawyers who wanted to be off the case, his trial for the sexual abuse of the three boys in Great Falls finally got underway on February 20, 2002, after being moved to Butte, Montana. During the week-long trial, Barjona's lawyer accused the police of coercing statements from the children involved. The oldest boy, a teenager at the time of the trial, acknowledged under questioning by one of Barjona's attorneys, Gregory Jackson, that he had gone to visit Barjona while he was in the Cascade County Jail. The teenager also testified that he had written Barjona a letter while Barjona was in jail, commending him for being a friend. Nathan, a portion of the letter read, you treated me really nice. You have never harmed me in any way. I really miss you, big guy. You were like the dad I never had. However, an FBI expert testified that the young witnesses were telling the truth regarding the alleged sexual abuse. Testimony was also provided that Barjona had placed a rope around the neck of one of the boys and had hung him from the pulley in the ceiling of his kitchen and details regarding erotic asphyxia were provided to a stunned jury and a courtroom full of spectators. The prosecution offered evidence the photo album seized from Barjona's apartment that contained thousands of pictures of children, including several pictures of them and one of the alleged victims. Other testimony from the victims was provided about sleepovers at Barjona's apartment and how he had touched them in a sexual manner. Prosecutor Brant Light characterized Barjona as an adult who literally had groomed his victims, spending months befriending the children so that he could one day sexually abuse them. 
This is a man who, at age 42, had only one ambition, Light said, to pursue young boys and molest them. On February 25, 2002, the jury found Bar Jonah guilty on one count of sexual assault, aggravated kidnapping, and felony assault. He was found not guilty on one count of sexual assault, and the jury was deadlocked on another count of sexual assault. The court declared a mistrial on the final deadlocked count. The court determined that Bar Jonah was to be assigned a level 3 sexual offender who posed an extreme danger to society and found that his prospects for rehabilitation were virtually non-existent. The court sentenced Bar Jonah to Montana State Prison for 10 years for the aggravated kidnapping conviction, 100 years for the sexual assault conviction, and to 20 years for the felony assault conviction. They also indicated there was no possibility of parole. Finally, the system was working. But Bar Jonah and his attorneys indicated that an appeal was forthcoming. Despite the amount of evidence that had been amassed against Nathaniel Bar Jonah in the disappearance and likely murder of Zachary Ramsey, it now appears that no one will ever know what certainly happened to the child. Zach's mother, despite the fact that Barjona had told her that he had hunted, killed, butchered, and wrapped the meat of her son, told the police and publicly she stated that she did not believe Barjona had anything to do with her son's disappearance. She had apparently seen a videotape of a child she believed was her son, supposedly taken at a military base in Italy. Even though the police had been able to show that the child on the tape was not her son, Zach's mother continued to believe that Zach was still alive. A psychic that she had consulted confirmed her belief and told her that her son was alive and well, but being hidden. Although the police believed that Barjona had killed the boy and had disposed of his remains by feeding them to Barjona's unsuspecting mother and her friends in the form of hamburger spaghetti sauces, stews and casseroles. A public statement from Zach's mother saying that she would testify in court if necessary that she did not believe that Bar Jonah was responsible for Zach's disappearance, death, or both made the case a long shot for the prosecution to win. I did not want Bar Jonah to be convicted of a crime that I believe he did not commit. Zach's mother told reporters for an Associated Press story. Zach's mother remains hopeful that the police would someday reopen the case involving her son, a move that seems very unlikely. In light of Zach's mother's statement, professing her belief in Bar Jonah's innocence and the disappearance of her son, Prosecutor Brant Light asked that the charges against Bar Jonah associated with Zachary Ramsey be thrown out. Light said that because of Zach's mother's statements, he didn't believe that there was anything or any way that he could win a case against Bar Jonah. A judge agreed with him, and in October 2002, all charges against Bar Jonah related to the Zachary Ramsey case were dismissed. In December of 2004, the Montana Supreme Court declined to hear Bar Jonah's appeals and upheld his convictions and sentences for the sexual abuse cases. On April 14, 2008, 
the obese evil man known as Nathaniel Barjona was found dead in his cell in Deer Lodge, Montana. Zach's mother, still in denial, refused to find comfort in his death. In 2011, Zachary's father had his son legally declared dead. His mother believes he is still alive and that the father is only looking for closure and to collect on the life insurance policy left behind. To this day, his mother still searches for Zach, and we will never know what really happened to her son. Was he one of the last victims of Barjona, or did something else happen to him that even today remains a mystery?